All right, so I don't have a good segue, but spiritual warfare, right? How about that? Marriage to spiritual warfare. I guess that's a natural segue. I don't know, maybe. But so we've been in this series the last few weeks talking about spiritual warfare. Um, us as Christians, that's a term that we use to refer to this kind of unseen spiritual battle that is happening between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. So we've spent the last few weeks, the last couple of weeks haven't really been fun necessarily. We've spent the last couple of weeks talking about how we have this enemy in Satan and demons and how our enemy Satan is real and he wants to destroy our lives. So that's what we've been at the last couple of weeks. But this morning will be a lot more fun because today we get to talk about our ally in this spiritual fight. So I remember my dad always told this story that in high school, um, he played football, and I guess it was, you know, one of those things where everybody made the team, they didn't cut anybody. He was a super late bloomer, so he's like 120 pounds and like the smallest guy on the entire team. And there was another guy on the team who, this other guy, he, he wasn't even the biggest or strongest guy on the team, he was just bigger than my dad, and this other guy had it out for my dad for whatever reason. He was just kind of always picking on my dad, giving my dad a hard time, kind of bullying my dad. And so one day my dad says they were standing outside of the gym. They were getting ready to go in and work out in the gym. And this guy kind of got in my dad's face. He did the whole kind of macho, tough guy thing, kind of started shoving my dad. And I'm sure my dad was terrified because, uh, again, this guy was bigger than my dad. If they got into it, my dad was going to lose this fight. He, he couldn't do anything to defend himself. Well, my dad says before he had a chance to do anything, another guy on the team, a guy who played linebacker, who was like the biggest, baddest, meanest, strongest dude on the entire team, steps in between my dad and this other guy, and he says, hey, Purvis, is this guy messing with you? You want me to take care of it? Right, so, so this guy who had no vested interest in fighting my dad's fight for him, stepped up and was ready and willing to fight this battle on my dad's behalf. And then that other guy, the bully, my dad says he never messed with him again. All right, so if you find yourself in a situation like that where there's somebody bigger and badder and stronger than you who's out to get you, it's good to have an ally in that fight. And so again, I know the last couple weeks may kind of be a little weird and a little scary as we talk about our enemy, as we talk about Satan, but the good news is in this spiritual battle that we are in against Satan and demons, we have an ally in that fight. And our ally in that fight is Jesus, who is our victorious God and King. So again, today we're going to look at how Jesus kind of steps in on our behalf, and he fights the battle for us, and he defeats our enemy Satan on our behalf. So we're going to be looking at Colossians 2 to see how he does that. But before we get there, I want to read from 1 John chapter 3. This is what John writes in chapter 3, verse 8. John says, but when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. And listen to this says, but the Son of God came to destroy the work of the devil. Right? John says that Jesus, the Son of God, came to destroy the work of the devil. So the Bible says one of the huge reasons, one of the main reasons that Jesus, who was God the Son, that he put on flesh and bone, and he came to earth, and he was born, and he entered into our story, one of the main reasons was to defeat Satan and his works, namely sin and death. And so this was actually promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis 3, when the fall happens, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, give in to sin and temptation, even there in that moment, God comes and he makes this promise. God says, one day there will be a son who will be born, and that son will crush the head of the serpent who represented Satan. 
And so right from the very beginning, God was promising another, this, this son will come and he will defeat the enemy. He will crush the serpent once and for all. And so Paul in Colossians chapter two, again, that's where we're gonna kind of camp out for the next few minutes. Paul, I think, puts it so beautifully how Jesus actually does this, what Jesus does to defeat the work of Satan on our behalf. So Colossians two, verse 13, this is what Paul writes. He says, you were dead. And by the way, when, when he says you, he's, he's talking to us. I want you to put yourself in there, right? Imagine that he's just speaking, like you and Paul are getting a cup of coffee, and this is what he says to you. He says, you were dead, you were spiritually dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. So he says, you were spiritually dead, but those he says, but then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of our sin. And then he says, he canceled the record of charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. That's talking about Satan and demons. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So I think in that passage, Paul lays out three ways that Jesus comes on our behalf and he goes to battle on our behalf and defeats Satan in our stead. So the first thing that Paul says Jesus did here is that Jesus removed our guilt. Paul says that Jesus removed our guilt. Look at that. He says he canceled the record of charges against us he took it away by nailing it to the cross. All right, so some kind of cultural context here. Back in the day in the Roman Empire, when somebody stood trial and they were convicted of kind of a high crime and their sentence was death, what would happen is as they were crucified, as they were being executed on a cross, oftentimes they would nail a little plaque above them on that cross that laid out the charges that they were convicted of. And the reason for this was to kind of be a deterrent of those crimes. And execution or uh, crucifixion of this day was a very public thing. And so you'd just be walking down the road, and as you're walking down the road, there would be a cross with a body hanging on it. And above that body, there'd be a little sign. And it said, this was Bob. Bob's crime was that he tried to revolt against the empire. And you would see that. And it was a warning sign to you. Say, man, don't revolt against the empire, because that's what happens to people who do. And then you get a little further down the road and there's a, another cross and there's a little sign that says, hey, this is John. John was a thief. And that's telling you, hey, like, you better not steal because this is what happens to people who steal in Rome. And so that's why if you've read the gospel, you know when Jesus was crucified, they put a sign above him that said King of the Jews because Jesus' supposed crime was blasphemy. He claimed to be God. And as we know, he actually is God. But notice here how in, in Colossians 2, notice what Paul says. He says, God canceled the record of charges against us. So what is implied there is that there has been crimes or a crime that we were charged with. Now, that's kind of weird. We, we may not like to think of it like this, but what Paul's implying is that we have been charged with a crime. And so the crime that we have been charged with, the Bible calls sin. And what sin is, a sin is essentially cosmic treason against the God of the universe. Sin isn't messing up. Sin isn't making a mistake, right? Sin is cosmic treason against the creator God of the universe. It's looking at God who sits on the throne of all creation and saying, hey, actually, I think I know better than he does. Actually, I think I'm going to try to take his throne. I'm going to try to kick him off the throne so I can sit on the throne because I think I'm a little smarter than he is and I think I know how my life should be lived better than how he says 
it should be lived. That's what sin is. It's cosmic treason against the creator of all creation. And so what the Bible says is that we have all sinned. We have all done that, every single one of us. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. So what Paul's implying here is, hey, we have been charged with this cosmic crime called sin. And then what the Bible tells us is that the punishment for a guilty verdict of sin is death. So we have all sinned, and because of that, if we are found guilty of that sin, the punishment is death, like death in this life, and then spiritual, eternal death separated from God forever in hell. So so that's kind of the reality. But what Paul says here is that those charges against us, if we're in Christ, those charges of sin against us have been canceled because they were nailed to the cross. What Paul's saying here is that when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't paying the penalty for his own sin because he was sinless. He didn't commit any crime. He had not sinned. So he wasn't paying the penalty for his crimes. He was paying the penalty for our crimes. He was paying for the charges against you and I. Now, here's how this plays into this whole idea of spiritual warfare and the spiritual battle that we are engaged in. What we need to realize is that, you know, in the book of Revelation and in many places throughout the Bible, one of the terms that the Bible uses for Satan, the enemy, is that it calls him the accuser, right? Satan, our enemy, is the accuser of mankind, is what the Bible says. And when it says accuser there, it's not just saying like, oh, he, he comes and tries to make you feel bad and guilty and shameful, and that, that is true, he does do that. But when the Bible calls Satan the accuser, in the original language, it's actually kind of a legal term. It's a term that you would use to describe a prosecuting attorney. So so the Bible essentially refers to Satan as the prosecutor, the prosecuting attorney. So back in high school, there was about like 10 minutes where I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, and for about 10 minutes, I decided I wanted to be an attorney. And then I quickly realized that attorneys had to like do a lot of school, and like that was not for me. Like school was not my thing. Well, I'm very good at school, so I'm like, nope, that's out. But for the 10 minutes when I wanted to be an attorney, one summer I interned with a guy in our church who was an attorney, and one day he took me down to the courthouse, and we sat in for a little bit on a criminal trial. I mean, I, I don't remember what the guy was charged with. I don't know if he was guilty or innocent, but I remember they, they brought the guy in. He's in the jumpsuit. He's in handcuffs. They bring him in and sit him down, and I think if I remember right, this was the jury selection process. And man, I so vividly remember. It was such a hard thing to watch. The, the prosecutor gets up, and he's talking to the prospective jurors, and he's basically pointing at this guy who has been accused of a crime, and, and the prosecutor's essentially, man, hey, this is a bad guy. This is an evil guy. We are going to prove to you over the next few, guy, next few days why this guy deserves to be in jail. We're going to prove to you why you need to lock him up and throw away the key because this man should not be on the streets. He's a bad guy. And just remember, it was such a brutal, shame-filled process. But, but here's what we need to see, and here's kind of the, the, the word picture that the Bible paints. It's that you and I, spiritually speaking, we are on trial. Because again, we have been accused, we have been charged, and the charge against us is sin and rebellion against God. And if we are convicted of those charges, again, the penalty is eternal death. And so the the picture here, I think what Paul is painting, the, the mental image he wants us to see is that we are in the courtroom and we are on the witness stand. 
Again, the Bible says that Satan is the prosecuting attorney. He's the one who wants to see us found guilty. He wants to destroy us. And fortunately, here's the good news. While Satan is the prosecuting attorney, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then Jesus is not only your defense attorney, he's also your judge. You get a two-in-one there. That's a good deal. We have an enemy who comes to accuse us, who comes to prosecute us, but our defense attorney is also the judge. And so what happens, we are up on the stand, and Satan, he's got all his evidence laid out, and he's got what he needs to convict us. He's got the proof of our guilt. So he stands up, and he points in your face, and he says, hey, October 5th, 2023, they gossiped. They, they talked bad about somebody else because they thought it would make them feel better about themselves. And he's like, hey, and this isn't hearsay. We've got the tape. He goes to roll the tape. He's got all the evidence. You're guilty of that, and you know you are guilty of that. And as he's laying out the facts of your guilt, Jesus stands up in the courtroom and says, objection. Nope, that charge was already nailed to the cross. It's been paid. It's been thrown out. You can no longer charge him for that crime. And so Satan gets up. He brings something outside. He says, okay, fine. You know, October 6, 2023, and fill in the blank with Whatever it is, and you know you're guilty, he knows you're guilty, he's got all the proof to show that you're guilty, and Jesus stands up and says, objection, that was nailed to the cross, it's already been paid, those charges have been dropped. And Satan goes through every single little thing he thinks he has on you to try to prove your guilt over and over again. But every single time, Jesus stands up and says, nope, that was covered by my blood. That charge was nailed to the cross. They are no longer guilty. Listen, look again at what Paul says. He says that he, God, canceled the record of charges against us. And here's the good news. It's not that he canceled it in the sense of that, like he just kind of chose to overlook the charges, and someday if he's mad and angry, he may bring those charges back up. No, he canceled the record of charges against us. He took it away, and he nailed it to the cross. That means that justice has already been served. The price has already been paid. Those charges can no longer be brought up against us. And so listen, if you are in Christ, then on the cross, what Jesus has done, one of the ways he has defeated the enemy, he has defeated Satan on our behalf, is that Satan can no longer accuse us. Because when he tries, Jesus stands up and says, no, that has been paid, that was nailed to the cross. Jesus has defeated Satan on our behalf and that we can no longer be found guilty before God because all of our guilt, all of our guilt was removed on the cross. So that's the first thing that Paul says, that on the cross, Jesus removed our guilt. All of that guilt that the enemy wants to try to hold against us to accuse us of, Jesus removed it. And the second thing we see here, and this kind of builds on that thing, but the next thing that Paul says Jesus did to defeat Satan on our behalf is that Jesus took away Satan's weapons. Jesus took away Satan's weapons. So it goes on, verse 15. It says, in this way, he disarmed. He disarmed, he took away the weapons of the spiritual rulers and authorities. In this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. That's talking about Satan and demons. There. He's saying he took away their weapons. Now, here's one thing we have to understand. And if you've been here a while, you've heard us talk about this, but it's good to be remembered, be reminded. 
One of the things that we know is true that the Bible shows us is that none of us were born free in a spiritual sense. None of us were born free in a spiritual sense. And I know, like, as Americans, man, like, freedom is, like, our highest value, so that's a little bit of a shock to our system. But none of us were born free. In fact, what the Bible shows us is that we were all born as spiritual slaves. Right? We were born as slaves to the enemy, and the way that he holds us captive in his kingdom is that we are in bondage to sin and death. Sin and death are the two great weapons that the enemy has that he hangs over our head. And we are held captive. We are born spiritually captive to his kingdom because sin and death reign over us. I remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at that passage here in Colossians as well, where it says, when we were saved, when we came to faith in Christ, remember what it says? It says that, that we used to be captive to the kingdom of darkness, but then we were transferred to the kingdom of God. It says we were captive, like we, we have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. So the language of the Bible uses, we were being held captive. We were in chains, and then Christ rescued us. And so again, we are not born spiritually free. We are born as slaves. And in particular, we're born as slaves to sin and to death. We are born with sin and death holding us in chains. And again, like as Americans, that's like a little bit jarring. That's a shock to our system. And, you know, you may want to push back on that a little bit and say, hey, that may be you, but that's not me. You know, I'm free. But, but here's the deal. I'll prove it to you. We've said this before. But if you think you are free, then the way you can prove it is to not sin and to not die. All right, that's how you can prove that you're free. Don't sin and don't die. And then you'll say, well, well, that's ridiculous. That's silly because no one's perfect and everybody dies. And yes, that's the point. You know why no one's perfect and why everybody dies? Because we are slaves to sin and death. You can't not sin and we can't not die. And sin is from Satan and death is the result. So he uses sin and death to keep us captive in his kingdom. And again, we couldn't do anything to be rescued from him. So what Jesus does is Jesus comes and he fights on our behalf. He comes and on the cross, he disarms Satan. He does this by one, taking our sin onto himself, and two, defeating death where he dies on the cross and through his resurrection, he defeats death so that we too can be resurrected and live forever with him. So through the cross, right, Jesus disarms Satan. He comes and the cross is the great rescue mission by which Jesus rescues us from captivity in the kingdom of darkness. He rescues us from our slavery of sin and death reigning over us and he frees us and he brings us into his eternal kingdom where our sin is paid and we can live forever with him. Through the cross, through Jesus' life and his humiliating death and ultimately through his resurrection, he took away the power that Satan held over us. Jesus disarmed Satan. Here's the third and final thing. This is so awesome. I love that Paul shows us. Paul, ultimately, he, he kind of wraps this up, and this all builds on one another, but what Paul shows us at the end is that Jesus has triumphed over Satan. Right? One of the ways that Jesus goes to battle against Satan is that Jesus has triumphed over Satan. So look at what he says at the end. He says, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, and then look at what Jesus does. He shamed them publicly by his victory on the cross. 
Jesus, or the Paul there says that Jesus and his victory on the cross, he put Satan and all of his spiritual forces to shame. Right? Like it, it, it wasn't a close fight. Like he shamed them. It was a blowout. Anybody watch that Dolphins and who was it? The Broncos the other week, like 70 to something. Like the Broncos were ashamed. If you're a Broncos fan, sorry, no offense. Right? They were ashamed. No one scored 70 in the NFL in years. Like that's insane. That's ridiculous. That's the kind of total victory that Paul's talking about here. He not only defeated Satan, man, he put him to shame. The actual language of what Paul is referring to here is, is referring to the triumphal entry of the Roman military. And the original readers, like living in Rome in this time period, they would have immediately gotten the mental picture of what Paul's talking about here. Because what would happen is, you know, whenever your nation or your territory, whatever, whenever they would go to battle, whenever they would go to fight against the enemy, you would be waiting to receive word. You'd be like on pins and needles every day, like, you know, is our king still alive? Have we won? Will we be victorious? And so what would happen is whenever the victory was secured and your king and his army has defeated the enemy, they would send a messenger back ahead of them to proclaim the good news that victory has been secured. And then what would happen is the king and his army are making their way back to town. All the citizens of the city, they would go outside of the gates of the city. They would line up and the king and his soldiers would triumphantly enter back into the city as we all stood around and clapped and cheered and sang their praises. But here's the deal. Here's what would happen. Any of the enemies who are left alive, who are captured, and especially if the enemy king or generals were captured, they would keep them alive, and this was a little bit brutal, but they would keep them alive, they would strip them naked, they would chain him behind the victorious king's chariot, and they would humiliate them and put them to the spectacle. And as the victorious king was marching back into the city, he'd be dragging the defeated enemies behind him. And the reason they did this, it was for you as a citizen, what would happen is you would look and you would see the humiliated, defeated enemy right there. And you would know, hey, I don't have to be afraid anymore. There's nothing to be scared of. You would know, hey, there's not some big, bad, scary enemy still lurking out there because I can see the humiliated, defeated enemy right there with my own two eyes. And that's the metaphor here that Paul uses when he says Jesus put Satan to shame and triumphed over him. That's what Paul is talking about. That on the cross, Jesus declared this news that the battle was over, the war had been won, and he was victorious. Right? That's part of what he was saying there, his final words on the cross where he says, it is finished. That it's over, that Satan is defeated, and through his resurrection, he took away all the power that Satan had with sin and death, and he paraded Satan around defeated making a spectacle of him. That's our king. That's who our ally is in this spiritual fight. Amen. Jesus has already defeated Satan, sin, and death, and he has done that on our behalf, for our benefit, for our good. So if he is in us, if we have trusted in him, then we get to participate in his victory as long as we are following him. Let me unpack that real quick and we're closing. We get to participate in his victory 
as long as we are following him. And I don't say that in the sense of we can lose our salvation because we can absolutely not lose our salvation. Once you're saved, your salvation is secured because your salvation, it's a changing of legal status. Remember, right, he says, he took away the charges, he nailed it to the cross. All of your guilt was paid on the cross. It can't be unpaid, right? That's ridiculous. Your sin can't be unpaid once Jesus pays it. So I don't say that in the sense of we can lose our salvation, but what I mean is that if we stop following Jesus closely, if we stop walking with Jesus, then we are putting ourselves in danger and we can lose our protection in this day-to-day spiritual battle. Right, the Bible says that you know, we need to be careful at the fiery darts of the evil one. The day-to-day, there's these little fiery darts that he's trying to throw you. He's trying to tempt you. He's trying to attack you. He's trying to discourage you. All of those things. And when we stop walking closely and following Jesus closely, we're putting ourselves at risk. Because here's what it says in Psalm 3, verse 3. And we sang these words a few minutes ago. And if you grew up in church, you, you remember that song and you've heard those words with Psalm 3, 3. It says, Thou, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head. All right, the psalmist says, Thou, O Lord, you are a shield around me. What it's saying there is that in this great spiritual battle that we are engaged in, Jesus is our shield. He is our protector. He is our defender. Right, but here's the deal. Think about a shield and think about that metaphor. A shield is only going to do you good if you stay behind it. Right? If, you, if you get out from around your shield, that's not going to do you any good. If you, if you turn around and start going the other way from your shield, that's not going to do you any good. And so for Christ to be our shield in this spiritual battle, we must stay behind Christ. We must walk with Christ. We must follow Christ closely. Right? That's what it means to repent of our sin. See, see what's happening? Again, we can't lose our salvation. Once you are saved, you are always saved. But even when we're saved, right, we still sin. We all know this. The answer isn't to be perfect because on this side of eternity, none of us will be perfect. But it's as if we're going through life, the enemy is out to get us. He's trying to tempt us. He's trying to discourage us. He's trying to attack us. And Christ is our protector. Christ is our shield. But when we sin, we're getting away from our shield. We're getting away from our protection. And so what repentance is, is repentance is turning away from our sin and getting back with Christ. It's turning away from our sin and returning to Christ, our shield. And so next week, we're going we're gonna to talk about from Ephesians how Paul uses um, this illustration of how we are to put on the armor of God. So next week, we're going to kind of dig in at our part in the fight, our part in this battle and what we need to do. But man, I I think the most important aspect of spiritual warfare, the most important thing that we do in this fight is to be a people who are quick to repent of our sin. Because again, the answer is not to be perfect because we're not going to be. We are going to sin. But the answer is when we sin, we are quick to acknowledge it, to admit it, to turn from it, and return to Christ. Because he's always waiting to receive us with his grace. So as we close, we'll close with this. I think there's maybe two possible ways to respond this morning. First of all, if you're here, maybe you're a follower of Christ. You already trusted in Jesus for your salvation. And again, if that's you, you can't lose your salvation. Your salvation is secure. But again, the enemy still does want to ruin your life. He does. 
He wants to discourage you. He wants to tempt you. He wants to destroy everything that God wants to do in your life. And so the response for you, man, is just when we sin, when we vote, we need to be so quick to repent. We need to be so quick to turn back to Christ, to ask for forgiveness, to confess our sin to him. And then maybe some of you here, though, you're, you're on the other side of that, and maybe you're here, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You haven't trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And if that's you, the response for you today would be to trust in Christ, receive his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. Because, again, here's the reality that the Bible teaches us. And, again, I know this isn't, like, fun news. And, you know, this doesn't, like, make us feel good, but the Bible says it's true, and we believe what the Bible says is true is actually true. So it would be unloving to not tell you this. Again, the Bible says that, that we have all been charged with this crime of sin. It says we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And it says because of that, we deserve death and eternity and hell separated from God. And here's the reality. Justice will be served. Our sin will be paid for. If the penalty for sin is death, God is a just God, so that sin must be paid for. Justice must be served. But God in his love and his mercy gives us the option. He says, instead of you paying for your sin, let Jesus pay for your sin. He went to the cross. He did what we could not do. He lived a perfect life. And he says, give it to me. I will take it on myself. I will pay it so that you can be forgiven. And then what Paul says here can be true of you, that you were dead because of your sin and your sinful nature was not yet cut away. So if you haven't trusted in Christ yet, Paul says that's currently right now today. That is where you are at. You are spiritually dead. You are not yet a child of God. You don't yet have a relationship with God. But this can be true of you. He says, then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sin and he canceled the record of charges against us, nailing it to the cross. And the way that can be true for you, it's awesome. Now listen, it's not about being religious it's not about joining this church, although we'd love to have you as part of the family. It's not about being a better person. It's about simply trusting in Christ, calling on his name for salvation, believing that he went to the cross and that when he went to the cross, he wasn't paying for his crimes because he had not. He was paying for ours. And believing that on the cross he could take our sin so that we could be forgiven. He was buried in the tomb on the third day, rose from death so that we could live forever with God. The way that this can be true for you is simply by trusting in Christ, turning to him, and beginning to follow him. So if that's your step today, man, we'd encourage you, don't leave here without taking that step. In a moment, we're going to sing and continue worshiping through song. But at the end of the service, there will be a couple people after we close up here at the front. And if you're here, and one, if there's just maybe anything going on in your life that you need prayer about, these people here at the front after the service, they would love to pray for you with whatever's on your heart, with whatever you're going through today. But even beyond that, if you're here today and you're like, man, I think what Paul says there when he says, you were dead because of your sin, I think that's me. I don't yet have a relationship with God. I don't know that my sin has been forgiven. So I, I want that. I want to be brought to new life in Christ. How can that be true for me? If that's you and you've got questions and you want to talk to and process that, with somebody. Again, after we sing at the end of the service, there'll be some people up here at the front. They would love to talk through that with you. But let me pray for us and we'll continue worshiping together.